We're continuing our series uh, today, or, or ending our series today, rather, on uh, the Bible and money. And I know y'all are probably tired of hearing about it, but you're also going to notice today that I'm not necessarily saying anything new that we haven't said before, because this week we're focusing on what Jesus had to say about money. The first week we looked at Moses and the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and what Moses had to say about money. And then um, last week, or the second week, we looked at the Hebrew prophets and what they had to say about money. And their major concern was making sure that we cared for the poor in our midst and that we didn't enjoy our wealth at the expense of the poor. And then last week, how many of y'all enjoyed Brother Dorsey last week? Wasn't that just an amazing service? The stories and the testimonies that he shared were so encouraging, and he shared with us about the multiplication when we're generous and how God will, will multiply and take care of us, and that was an amazing. If you missed it, it's on the app. It's on online. Go back and listen to that on the podcast or something because I promise you, if you put into practice some of the things that Brother Dorsey taught us last week, God will bless you, and you will see multiplication in your life, and it will change your life if you begin to practice it. But today, we're looking at Jesus and money, and I want to read you Matthew chapter 6, Verse 24, the words of Jesus, he says this. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's pray really quick. Lord, Use me today to, to wrap up this series. God, really, we're talking about money, but it's so much more than money. It's about lordship. It's about making you lord of our every part of our lives. And so, God, I pray there's maybe someone watching today, someone in the room, that there's some areas of our lives that we haven't submitted to you. And, Lord, I don't want to serve any other master but you. There's no other master as good as you, Lord. And so, Lord, we submit to the master today that you get to decide every part of our lives and you get to be Lord of every part of our lives. Help me to communicate that, touch the people today, and for them to be changed and transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus has a lot to say about money. A lot. If you go through the teachings of Jesus, his sermons, his parables, it would be safe to say that Jesus talks about money on every page of the four Gospels. We're going to look at some of it today, but this right here, this first verse, Matthew chapter 6, 24, and the Sermon of the Mount is an important summary of everything that Jesus would have to say about money. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic word for money. It's just a, another word for money, but usually when the Bible uses the word mammon, it's talking about when that those moments where we allow money to rise to the level of an idol that we worship in our lives. If, if you were going to talk about the number one idol, especially in the American culture that we worship, it would absolutely be money. It would, it, that is the idol that we worship. Second would probably be sex right under that. But those are the two big idols that, that our culture worships, that our culture, we, everything we do in our culture seems to revolve around money. And, and even, you know, people get real, it's a reverent thing. We talk about oh, the economy. You heard people, yeah, but, but the economy. And you kind of get hushed when you talk about it. You know, people say, well, yeah, he's done all that other stuff. And, and yeah, he's probably not a good guy. But, but the economy. Come on. 
You know, we're willing to look a whole lot of stuff, overlook a whole lot of stuff as long as they're going to take care of the the economy. Y'all aren't getting it. You know, you've heard people talk like this. It's almost like a hushed reverent, well, you know, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing in how we decide who's going to lead us and how we decide what's going to happen to us and, and how we decide what decisions and policies we make. The economy is it's this, mo- it's this hush, reverent thing that we treat money like, oh, this is the ultimate thing that drives us. Jesus says you cannot serve the living God while also trying to serve money as a God. Someone's going to lose out in that battle. Someone is going to have to make a choice at some point. Now, we live in a world where it's impossible to escape money. It's impo- you ever, we all need money. I want money. I, I will freely admit that. If you want to give me some, I'll take it. You know what I mean? We, we, live, we have to have it to live and to function. We have to have it to participate in society and culture. You can't escape it. But the problem is, is that in trying to uh, uh, engage in the money system, we often make an idol out of money, and we can't do that. Jesus says, use it as a tool, but don't let it be your master the predominant idol in our society. It's the thing that we treat with such reverence. It's the holy one, the exalted money, or the economy, the jobs. You know, that's, those are the things we talk about so much. And, you know, by the way, I think this decision to serve God and not serve money, I, I, I don't think it's a decision you can make just once. If you're like me, i got to make that decision every day. I've got to say, you know what, God, every other idol I'm going to put to the side and I want to focus on you. It's something I've got to decide every day to constantly be focused on Jesus, to constantly be filled with the Spirit, constantly seeking to deliberately follow him because sometimes idolatry is sneaky and you don't realize that you've made something into an idol until it has knocked Jesus off the throne and now it's on the throne and it takes a slow fade sometimes and so it has to be an everyday conscious decision that I'm not going to fall into that trap of making mammon my idol, but I'm going to put King Jesus on the throne of my life every day. Now, what did Jesus do between his baptism at the River Jordan by his cousin John at the beginning of his ministry, between that and the culmination of his ministry at the crucifixion? What did Jesus do in that three-year period? You know, we love the Bible as evangelical Christians, as Pentecostal Christians. We, we believe the Bible, but it's interesting. Sometimes we ignore that in-between period. You even hear people say it. They'll say, why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus came to die. And then it's like we skip from Christmas to Easter every time, and we kind of forget all the things that Jesus says and does in the in-between period. We skip over the things that he taught us. But what we have to remember is the cross wasn't necessarily the end of Jesus' ministry, and it wasn't necessarily the goal of Jesus' ministry. It was just the culmination of his ministry. But we can't just say we celebrate Easter or Christmas, and then we skip to the cross. We've got to look at the whole life of Jesus. And what does Jesus do during his ministry? He announces and he enacts the kingdom of God. Jesus announces and enacts the kingdom of God. God. Isn't it interesting? Last week, last month, we did a series on politics, and this month we've done it. We're doing a series on money, and both series you end up talking about the kingdom. It's like the kingdom's really a big deal, you know, like it really matters. 
and that sometimes we make politics or money the king that we serve instead of the actual king? You know, just connecting the dots for you so that you see there's a point to all of this. We're citizens of the kingdom first. Amen? Jesus announces and enacts the kingdom of God. He's telling people, hey, the kingdom's here. What is he, what's the first message he preaches after he gets baptized? He goes out and he says, repent. The kingdom's here. It's happening. There's a new government coming. There's a new way of living that's coming. A new ordering of human society. And it's not from earth. And it's not from a man. And it's not from a politician. It comes from the heavenlies. It comes from my father. It's good news. It's a new kingdom. A new way of being human. And I'm announcing that it has arrived. And then for the next three years, I'm going to act out what it looks like to live in this kind of kingdom. I'm acting it out by healing people and showing you that in the kingdom, sickness has to bow. I acted out by coming up to a demon-possessed man and casting that demon out and saying, you know what? In the kingdom, Satan has no power. Come on. And so he's saying, I'm going to not just say the kingdom's here. I'm going to show you how to live in the kingdom. I'm going to practice radical hospitality where anyone can come and sit at my table and we're not divided by race or creed or culture, but we're just simply all people who can come around the table together because the kingdom is about bringing people in, not locking people out. He, he comes to announce it's here and then show us, enact, act out the kingdom. Between his baptism and his crucifixion, he announces over and over this new thing called the kingdom of God. And he acts out over and over every time he heals somebody, every time he sits down to eat with somebody, every time he drives out a demon, every time he preaches, he's telling us something about the kingdom. The kingdom is a big deal. And he calls people into the kingdom. He calls his disciples. He says, hey, I'm, I'm starting a new kingdom. You want to come with me? You want to follow me into this new kingdom? You want to be a part of this new kingdom? This old kingdom, this old way of life, it's all going to pass away. Isn't that what he said? Old things pass away. Behold, all things are becoming new. This old way of life, it's going to pass away. And if you want to make it out of here, you got to get in the new kingdom because there's a new way to live. There's a new way to walk. There's a new way to see the world. That's what Jesus' job is. The kingdom of God that Jesus announces and enacts looks at money differently than the rest of the world and treats money differently than the rest of the world. It has a different alternative economy. It's not a fear and base, greed-based economy like Pharaoh in Egypt or like Caesar in Rome. It's not based on fear and greed. It's not the fear and greed based that Wall Street and Washington, D.C. are based on. But the kingdom calls us to rise above fear and greed and instead to enter into a new kingdom with a new kind of economy and a new approach to material possessions that is all based on trust and generosity. Trust and generosity. If you want to be in the new kingdom, if you want to be part of this kingdom, no, you got to leave fear and greed behind. Got to leave all that behind because that's how, that's how Pharaoh does things. That's how Caesar does things. That's how, that's how D.C. does things and Wall Street. We don't, we don't live by that kingdom. We live by a new, and it's all about trust and generosity. Trust God and be generous. What's the greatest commandment? We're to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. And guess what? That involves what you do with your money. What's the second greatest commandment? We're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And guess what? That involves what we do with our money. So, so we're to seek first God's kingdom 
right? That involves our money, seeking first God's kingdom, seek first God's righteousness, his justice, how he says we, should ought, we ought to live. That involves our money. And what does he say? If you seek first his kingdom and you seek first his righteousness with your money, then all these things will be added unto you. In other words, you look after the kingdom and you seek the kingdom, the kingdom will take care of you. Another thing Jesus makes clear in his preaching and teaching now, you ready for this one? I might not get an amen on this one. Jesus makes clear that the single greatest challenge or obstacle to fully participating in his kingdom is economic selfishness. Yeah, I didn't think I'd get one on that one. The single greatest challenge or obstacle to fully participating in his kingdom is our own material selfishness. Now that's challenging. That makes me want to cringe too. I don't like that one. Because I'm talking to me too. I, believe me, I, I like having money. I'll prove it to you. Bring me some. I'll prove it to you. I want to have plenty of it for myself and for my family in the next generation. If you've got two brain cells, you like having money, you know. But Jesus says, still, the single greatest challenge to fully participating in his kingdom is being selfish about our material possessions. He says this in all kinds of ways, but maybe none more memorable than Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, where he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And my first question is, define rich. Yeah, Joey was with me. Yeah, I need you to define what that means so I know whether, what category I fall into. Guess what? If you got shoes on your feet and you woke up with a roof over your head this morning, you are wealthy compared to most of the world. We are wealthy people. We're blessed people, amen? It's possible, Jesus says, to enter in the kingdom because the next verse he says, what with man is impossible, it's possible with God. He's not saying it's impossible. He's just saying it's, it's difficult. It's not easy to have economic self-interest and enter into his kingdom. And, you know, he's not really talking about going to heaven when you die. We kind of just skip to that, you know. But he's really talking more about everyday participation in the life or in the lifestyle of the kingdom. And he's saying if you really want to experience the kingdom, and we don't have to wait until we die to experience the kingdom. The kingdom's here. It's happening all around you. And he says, but if you want to see it happening, if you want to realize it's happening, if you want to take part in the kingdom, then you, you've got to understand that it's going to be difficult as long as you hold on to your own economic selfishness. Now, while that's true, Jesus said those things, and it's hard to hear, don't make the mistake of believing or assuming that Jesus is against wealth or prosperity or against abundance. It's easy to make that mistake. Well, money, Jesus hates it. Jesus hates money. He was poor. He walked around poor. He didn't have a, you know, we quote that verse. He didn't have a head, a place to lay his head to rest. He, G, abundance, Jesus is against it. Jesus hates money. He hates wealth. No, because while Jesus is challenging our economic self-interest, at the same time, there was this surprising almost ridiculous abundance that followed Jesus wherever he went. 
There always seems to be more than enough with Jesus. There, wherever Jesus goes, abundance seems to follow him. So he's challenging us to depart from money as an idol. But at the same time, he says, if you'll quit worshiping money, I'll always make sure you've got enough of it. <laughs> and it's this kind of ridiculous abundance that he, it, it, it's just overflowing abundance that follows Jesus wherever it goes. He makes it clear that if you make mammon your idol, if you make it your focus on getting more, it will be almost impossible to participate in the kingdom. But if you'll make Jesus your God and you'll make him your master, the abundance will just follow you wherever you go. How did he start his miracle ministry? In John chapter, uh, chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, when people had already filled their bellies, the, the Bible says, they ran out of wine. And Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't just go and say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll conjure up uh, another glass for everybody. No. He says, hey, he tells the servants, go fill those pots with 180 gallons of water. And when they go and serve that water to the people, they look in the cup and it's not water, but it is fresh, fine wine. And there's 180 gallons of it. They were already full. They didn't need more. But Jesus' first miracle, he chose to give them way more than enough because abundance follows Jesus wherever he goes. That's not economical to make 180 gallons of wine. It's not frugal to do that. He's not stingy with it, but that's abundance. Or think about this, when he's teaching his disciples, he's got, he's got thousands of people following him out into the wilderness, and they've been outside the city for a couple of days having a little spiritual retreat. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, you know what? I bet these folks are hungry. He says, we probably better feed them. And the disciples, they get their phone out, and they pull up the calculator app, you know, and they start saying, okay, there's 5,000 men here plus women and children, and there's always more women and children than men in the church. Right? So they, they're adding up. There's at least 10,000 people, probably more. And they're, okay, you know, you can get a $5 box at Taco Bell. You know, and they're doing that. They're, they're figuring that out. You do the math how much that's going to be. $5 times 10,000 people, $50,000. Is my math right on that one? And they turn to Judas because he's the one that carries the money bag, remember? And they say, Jesus, have we got $50,000 in the money bag? And he says, no. <laughs> he says, remember, Jesus hates money. <laughs> That's what they think. He says, we don't, we don't have $50,000 to feed these people out in the wilderness. And they go to Jesus. Jesus, we check the budget. <laughs> we check the ledger book, Jesus. We, checked the, we pulled up our, our, our bank app on our phone to check our balance. Anybody else do that every morning when you wake up? Yeah. <laughs> Make sure it's still there. We checked it. We don't have enough to feed him. What's Jesus asking? He says, what do you have? What do you have? They start looking. They kind of ask around because they don't have anything. And they find a little boy, the only one out of 10,000 people that thought to bring lunch. And he says, I got a can of sardines and some saltine crackers my mama packed for me. That's all I got. But you know what? If Jesus needs it, I'll give it to him. Five crackers and two sardines. Five loaves and two fish. Jesus, he, they hand it to Jesus. He says, you know what? This will work. Pretend you don't know the end of the story for a second. 
How ridiculous is this so far? This will work. He says, tell everybody to get ready for lunch. Tell them sit down, get the picnic blanket out and sit down, and we're going to feed them lunch. And he's just sitting there holding two sardines and some crackers. Five loaves and two fish. Jesus breaks it and he blesses it. And he feeds 5,000 men plus the women and children. At least 10,000 people. You know, you do it in the natural. That's one piece of bread for every 2,000 people. They're not going to get very much. But somehow, when it's in Jesus' hands, when it's not in my hands, but I release it from my hands and I put it into Jesus' hands, when it's no longer mammon sitting on the throne of my life, but it's an offering given to the true king who sits on the throne of my life, when I do that, somehow it turns into more than enough. Somehow, when there was lack before, now there is no lack. Somehow, five loaves plus two fish plus Jesus equals 12 baskets left over after everyone had gotten seconds and thirds. That's ridiculous abundance. He could have made exactly enough for every person to have one helping and say, you know what, we'll call it good, go home. That'll tide you over till you get home. But that's not what he did, was it? He gave plenty with 12 baskets full left over. I think about that sometimes, about those 12 baskets. That are left. And, you know, it says that they went across the sea after that, and they carried those 12 baskets with them. And, you know, you think about, they're just looking at this, these 12 baskets of food, thinking, I mean, like, thinking, how in the world? That's ridiculous, almost comical abundance. They're looking at those baskets like, man, where'd those come from? I'm full. How in the world is there 12 baskets left? It's an absurd abundance that follows Jesus. You turn the page over a couple of pages, he does it again with 4,000 people a few days later. What about the time Jesus, his, his taxes were due? Do you know Jesus had to pay taxes just like you and me? Some of y'all have been dodging your taxes, and Jesus says, you know what, I paid them, you can pay them. Jesus had to pay his taxes, and, and Peter, both of them, their taxes were due. What did Jesus tell Peter to do? This is crazy. Jesus says, hey, Peter, get your fishing rod. I want you to go down to the beach, and I want you to throw a line out into the water and catch a fish. And he says, when you pull that fish out of the water, look in its mouth. So Peter does it. You know, sometimes Jesus will tell you to do stupid things. That didn't make any sense. I got taxes to pay. I don't have time to go fishing. He, got, he does it, and he pulls that fish in, and he opens that fish's mouth. And in that fish's mouth is the exact amount of money to pay two people's tax. Jesus could have fulfilled that any way he wanted to. He could have said, you know what? I'm the king. I don't have to pay taxes. I'm not doing it. But instead, he said, "Jesus," he said, Peter, go, go catch a fish. Look in its mouth. You know, there's some restaurants when you go to Jerusalem, if you travel there. I haven't heard it, but I, I haven't been there. But you can go and order St. Peter's fish at a restaurant, and they'll put a little coin in the fish's mouth to remind you. Isn't that cool? Jesus, there's this abundance. About the time the guy's been fishing all night and hadn't caught a thing. I'm just telling stories. I'm just trying to encourage you. They hadn't caught a thing all night, and Jesus sees them on the shoreline. And he says, hey, they're in shallow water. They're, they're where there's no fish. It's already the heat of the day. There's no fish out by now. 
He says, hey, just cast your net out on that other side over there. And what does it say? They, cast, they just did it out of obedience. It didn't make sense, but they were still obedient to the Lord. Somebody needs to hear that. They cast their, their net out into the water, and it says they, they brought in a bumper crop. It was breaking their nets, how much fish that... Those, Jesus somehow spoke to those fish and told them to swim into that net when they let it down. He'll call fish into your net if you let him. It almost sank their boat. How much? Lord, would you sink my boat with money? Come on. <laughs> you know? This ridiculous abundance. I told you all about, you know, that I based this series off of another pastor that preached a similar thing, and, and I had his permission. I said, hey, this was so good. I want to I preach it. And I was listening to him kind of preach on Jesus, and he said, you know, I, I've got some stories of some ridiculous abundance. He's a pastor up in Missouri, and he was sharing about when they were first starting out. They planted their own church, and uh, they were poor. I mean, like, they were, they were making it off of, like, uh, $75 a month, and that was their only job back in the 80s. Like, that was what they just had to trust the Lord. And they, they'd started, and they didn't have money for groceries. Um, no, this story was they didn't have money for rent. They were just, you know, $40 short or something for rent. And he said that his wife was washing dishes one day. And she got done washing her dishes, and she pulled the plug in the sink, you know, to let all the water out, and two $20 bills floated up out of the drain. Exactly what they needed. He talked about we didn't have any, we didn't have money to buy groceries, didn't have enough. He said we were, we were just starving. I mean, we were just poor, poor. He said, I remember one day I was sitting on my front porch just asking the Lord, God, how am I going to do that, kids? You know, I said, how am I going to do it? said, a man drove by, pulled out in front of my house. I never met this man before in my life. Ran up on the porch, handed me a sack of money, like $100 bills in a bag. Handed it to me and drove off. I never saw him again. I've got stories. I, I want to tell you this one, and I want you to hear this for, and you, some of y'all have heard it. I am not bragging on me. I'm bragging on God. When we came here, we took a step of faith. I hope you hear me that I'm not trying to guilt anything, but we took a step of faith. Katie didn't have a permanent job coming here. And, uh, and it was a pay cut for me to come here. Just the Lord spoke to us about it. Uh, it was probably about 60% of our income we lost by moving here. Just trust in the Lord. We had a new baby on the way. We had medical bills to pay. That baby cost more than I thought it was going to cost. You know, because she was stubborn about getting here. You know, and we didn't know how we were. We, we figured out, we moved here in October. We said, we can make it till November, and Katie, you've got to get a job. <laughs> or we're not going to have money. Listen, I can tell you right now, we are more financially secure now than we were two years ago before we came. I don't know how he did it. We've never missed a bill. We've never missed a payment. We've been able to increase what we give to missions and to the church and tithing and, and offerings. We've been able to give. And God's just blessed it. And there's more than, ever, than, than we could have ever thought. When we were, found out we were having a baby, we went to the doctor for that first appointment. They told us how much it was going to cost. And you had to pay for it before the baby got there. There was no payment plan or anything. It was like, you just got to have this. It was something like four or $5,000. It was, it was a lot. And we did not have four or five thousand dollars, y'all. Did not have it. And 
we had nine months to get it, basically, you know, and, and save it up. And by the time the baby got here, we had way more than we needed to pay the doctor. We were able to still have something in savings. We paid the doctor. God, God took care of it. There's just an abundance that comes. Just last week, the pastor prayed over us and said, you know, prayed for all of us and, and our, our finances and stuff. Twice this past week, unexpected money came our way. At least once. And one the week was the week before or something. Yeah, God just took care of it. Didn't necessarily even need it, but God gave it to us, you know. And I'm not saying this to say you, you just get stuff. I'm telling you, there's an abundance that comes when you trust the Lord. He just does ridiculous things to just prove to you, hey, I got this. I got it under control. I want to encourage someone in your faith today. I know that in this year, in the middle of a pandemic, when jobs have changed and there's been economic insecurity and you have had discussions around your own kitchen table and said, I don't know how we're going to make it. We've got to make cuts and all those kinds of things. I want to encourage you, if you're wise with your money and you honor God with your money, he will see you through this current period of time. And, and a year from now, you're going to look back and you're going to say, how in the world? Did we make it through this? And the answer is, wherever Jesus goes, abundance goes with him. I want to encourage you today, don't fear. That's, that's Pharaoh's way of doing money. Fear and greed is how Pharaoh does it. But trust God and be generous. Come on, be generous. Now, there are people who say that Jesus just hang out with the poor, and that's true. But it's also true that Jesus hang out, hung out with the rich. He did both. He hung out with the poor. Sometimes he was hanging out with people who didn't have anything, but sometimes you'll hear people talk about, like, that's exclusive, that Jesus only likes poor people and that you've got to be poor in order to be a, a real Christian and you've got you to be, you know, just scraping by. And that's not true because Jesus hung out with the rich as well. And sometimes they, uh, that does offend people to hear that Jesus had rich friends. It offended people in Jericho when Jesus walked by everybody and chose to go to Zacchaeus' house instead of the preacher's house or the poor person's house. But he went to Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector's house. And as far as we can tell, Jesus' closest friends were Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And y'all, they were rich. You read your scripture, they had money. When Jesus and his disciples would come into Jerusalem, they would stay at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' estate. We could call it an estate. You know, when you're rich, it's not a house, it's an estate. And they would say, apparently there was enough room in that house for Jesus and 12 other men to stay. That's a big house. And there was enough food to feed them every time they came. And 12 men that have been traveling are going to eat a lot. And then on the Wednesday before Jesus' crucifixion, they held a dinner at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. And at that dinner, Mary brings out a jar of perfume that the Bible says was worth 300 denarii. $300? No. No, conservatively speaking, 300 denarii is more like $25,000 in our economy today. One bottle of perfume worth $25,000. Listen, if you have any perfume at your house worth $25,000, I, I just want to let you know you're rich. Nobody else has that. You're the 1% if you've got that in your household. Now, pretend you never heard this story. Pretend. You see this woman walk in and you know, you see the label on there, Chanel number, whatever. And you see how expensive it is. Pretend you don't know the story. And you watch the woman break it and pour it all over Jesus' head and feet. $25,000. Nobody at that dinner said hallelujah when that happened. Nobody said praise the Lord. Everyone said, wait a minute. 
25 grand that you just poured out on the ground? Are you out of your mind? That could have been sold. You could have paid off the house with that. You could have bought me a car with that. You could have helped the, so many poor people that how many could you have fed? And you expect Jesus to tell her off. Hey, that was so wasteful. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, what she's done is a beautiful thing. And then he tells, he says, what she has done, she will be remembered and people will tell this story for generations to come. As long as this gospel is preached, they will know her name and what she has done for me. He doesn't. He says it's beautiful. He didn't call it wrong. He didn't condemn her. He said, you know what? The poor is going to be with you always, but me, you won't have always. And I tell you what, wherever this gospel's preached, you're going to hear this story. So it's hard to, uh, the moment you think you've got Jesus figured out that he just likes poor people, he does something like this. You can't use Jesus as a champion for class warfare especially to accuse others and to, to hate other people because of how much money they have or don't have. You can't use Jesus. He, he hangs out with the poor, but he also hangs out with the rich. He challenges the rich. He says it's easier for you to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through, uh, uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to enter into the kingdom. Yet, but someone anoints him with $25,000 worth of perfume and he says this is a beautiful thing. He doesn't condemn her. Well, the real interesting thing about what Jesus says is that he really doesn't say much more or less than what Moses said the first week. Trust God. Be generous. Tithe. Give to the poor. Take care of yourself. And enjoy the abundance that God sends your way. Don't forget but God when you have it. And he calls his disciples to take seriously what Moses and the prophets have already said. God is an abundant God. He is a generous God. You can trust God, take care of the poor, take care of the needy around you. And when you do that, abundance will come your way. One last story from Scripture. Jesus and a man that we only know as the rich young ruler. He's a young man with some kind of political power. He's some kind of ruler or governing authority. He has power. He's rich. He's young. He's powerful. And Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, he comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man says back to Jesus, Which commandments? You know, we all do that. We say, Okay, which ones are you real serious about, God, and which ones can I get by with? And Jesus lists the Ten Commandments. Or the six justice commandments, the the bottom six. He assumes that the man's already a good Jew who worships God correctly, doesn't take God's name in vain, and keeps the Sabbath. So he starts with number five, and he starts listing them off. And he says, don't kill, or excuse me, honor your parents, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and don't covet. Keep the commandments. Which ones? Don't honor your parents, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. Jesus assumes he's got the first four covered. He's reminding him about the last six. But it's interesting that actually Jesus doesn't say the Tenth Commandment. He leaves that one off. He doesn't actually say don't covet. In Mark, he reads, you read it and he says, don't defraud. That's a little bit stronger word than covet. That's about stealing something from someone, of uh, being fraudulent in your business dealings. Once you give yourself over to covetousness, it's just one more step to being fraudulent in your business practices. In Matthew, instead of saying, do not covet, covet, Jesus says is that for that last commandment, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
In other words, if you're coveting, desiring that someone else has less so that you can have more, then it becomes impossible to love your neighbor. So make sure that you're loving your neighbor as yourself. But in Luke, when Luke tells this story in the Gospel of Luke, the 10th commandment is completely left out. Look at Jesus, uh, Luke 18. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Notice he doesn't say anything about coveting there. And he said, the man replied, he says, all these I've kept from my youth. I've been good with these. I've, I've kept these. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. I never noticed that Jesus was actually intentionally left out that last commandment. And he said, you forgot one. There's one. You might be keeping all the first nine, but there's one that you've got an issue with. This makes the story of the rich young ruler make so much more sense. He says, you forgot about covetousness. And instead of Jesus saying, don't covet, he says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. The cure for covetousness is generosity. The rich man, young ruler says, I've done all that. I follow these commandments. Jesus says, there's one you lack. There's one still commandment I haven't mentioned yet. He says, sell all the money, give it to the poor. And Mark, he says, don't defraud. And Matthew, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, And Luke, he says, sell everything and come and follow me. And you know what? That makes us all nervous. Wait a minute. This is what it takes to follow Jesus. i got to sell everything and give it to the poor. There are all kinds of ways that we try to reinterpret this verse and soften it because we don't like what he says to the rich young ruler. But nevertheless, we have to allow Jesus to challenge our thoughts and our behavior about money. And it's true. Jesus didn't give this instruction to every rich person that he meets. But Jesus knew that this guy had an issue with worshiping money. And he said, you know what? You've been faithful in all the commandments, but this one about your material possessions, you haven't been faithful in, and the cure to it is to give it all away and just follow me. He doesn't even say that to Zacchaeus when he's having lunch with him. And Zacchaeus just says, I'll give half. But Jesus diagnoses this young man and his one spiritual issue that he's having trouble giving over to the lordship of Jesus, and he says, give it all away. Now, probably what's happening is Jesus is telling the man, come and follow me as one of my disciples. That's what he told all the disciples when he found Matthew fishing or at the tax collector's booth. He found Peter fishing. He said, just leave it all behind and come and follow me. And probably that's what he's giving this guy the opportunity to join the band and follow him. We don't know how it works out. We know how it works out to follow Jesus. We know it works out for Peter and Matthew and all those guys. But this guy doesn't know. They bet the whole business on following this preacher from Nazareth who just got started preaching yesterday, and that's risky. Jesus, he's inviting this guy. He says, come on, join me. Just leave it all behind. Give it to the poor. Follow me. And that makes us nervous, and we find ways to soften it and say, you know, that's Jesus didn't really mean that. He didn't really mean give it all away. Yeah, he kind of did with this guy. He really did. We have to allow Jesus to speak and diagnose our issues with money and speak to them. This young man refused that opportunity. And can I tell you, I think he lost out on the best financial deal he could have ever made. Because Jesus promised, you know, if you give it to me, I'll return it to you 30, 60, 100 fold. This young man, he lost out. In other words, he made money a no-fly zone for Jesus in his life. 
He said, you know what? I'll follow that first nine commandments. I'll do it. I'm good with that, but please don't talk to me about my money. I'd rather not give that over to you. Don't just assume that Jesus is going to be okay with that. He's not going to be okay with any part of your life walled off from him. Because the foundation for all the Bible says about money, we looked at the first week of this series, the earth is the Lord, Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything I have, everything I own, it already belongs to him. It's all a blessing from him that I just get to use it for this life. But it's all his. It's all mine, God says. And I'm very interested in everything you do with what's mine. Rest of the story, really quick, I'm almost done. Luke 18, verse 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Those who heard it said, well, who can be saved then? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this life and in the life to come. Trusting God with your finances is the best financial decision you could ever make. This promise right here says anything you give up for me, you're going to get way more. Let me say this, Jesus, he's not a Marxist and he's not a communist. He doesn't treat that, uh, he's not a follower of Karl Marx and socialism and all the different isms that we think of with certain uh, realms of politics. But Jesus also isn't necessarily a capitalist. He's not laissez-faire economics and a follower of Adam Smith and, and, and Wall Street and those kinds of things. And if he's not a communist and he's not a capitalist, what is he? He's just someone who loves. Jesus teaches love economics. The most important thing you can do with your money is love God and love your neighbor. And notice it's in that order. You can't just say, uh, it's, it's all about love God, love first. There are people out there who say, I don't need God. I'll just be generous with my money. And listen, that goes nowhere. Eventually, you're going to run out of love for somebody. And you're going to run out of money. But if you love God first and then your neighbor, there will always be more than enough. And abundance will follow. Love God supremely, love your neighbor as yourself, then you'll see God's blessing on your life. And if you really love with that love of the first commandment, your life will begin to steer clear of the sin of idolatry because it'll be held in your hand loosely and it won't be put on the throne of your life as an idol. An abundance of Jesus will follow you in your life. How do we respond to what Jesus says about money? Trust and generosity. Have someone come, please. Trust and generosity. Trust God. Not going to be anxious, Jesus says. Don't worry about that money stuff. Consider the lilies. Consider the birds of the air. Trust God. He'll take care of you. Trust God. Seek first his kingdom. Everything else will be added. Trust God and then be generous with what you have. 